Welcome to Your Average Badass, a place where we make a big deal out of small wins, where we applaud curiosity and resilience and self-compassion is a daily practice, where we believe that two steps forward and one step back isn't a failure, it's learning to dance. My name is Alyssa Davis, and I'm so glad you're here to celebrate these feats of everyday badassery. Hello, Ginger. Welcome, welcome. Hi, thank you. I'm so happy to be here and talk Yay. with you. Me too. I'm happy you're here. Thank you for being here. I'd love it if you could tell us a little bit about yourself. What do you do? What are your passions? Is there anything you absolutely hate? <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, so my main job is I'm a licensed marriage family therapist and professional clinical counselor. Uh, so I, I have my own private practice in Orange County, California. Um, and I specialize in treating trauma, PTSD, complex PTSD. Uh, I work with the BIPOC and queer community and the lovely intersection of that, which I love calling cutie BIPOC. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and I uh, work with teenagers, mostly individuals, um, but really 12 to 65 is my age group um, with that. And my second job is I am a psychology adjunct professor at a community college in LA County. And I teach psychology of women and gender, which is an amazing class. And I also teach psychology of sexuality. And those two classes go together so, so well. Mm -hmm. um, and then technically my third job, <laughs> a little busy, is I do consulting and guest talks like we're doing right now. I love that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And uh, I mean, I'm passionate about mental health, I've always been passionate about mental health, helping people. Um, and I was also just always learning and, and educating, I think really goes well with that. So it's cool. As a therapist, I do a lot of listening and obviously some speaking. But then that's where like teaching and doing things like this, I get to do more of the talking, which is a lot of fun. <laughs> mm -hmm. You mentioned you've loved this your whole life. Is there a certain age where you found you wanted to become a therapist and a professor? Uh, so I think teenage years when I started going into therapy and benefiting from therapy is when I started to think about it. Uh, that and my, uh, my grandmother actually is also a counselor, a licensed professional counselor okay. and also an educator. So I think in a way you could say it's in my blood, but um one of my main mottos has been, I want to help people in ways that I was helped, but I, I also want to help people in ways I was not. Um, not to say that I only had bad therapists. It's, it's been a mixed bag, I think, like most people who have been in and out of therapy for a while. And, and also, honestly, it speaks to the times as well. You know, um, I was a teenager in the 90s and early 2000s. And we didn't have as much advocacy, as much discussion about intersectionality and our also our understanding of trauma and what really qualifies as abuse was also very different then. Uh, so mm -hmm. some, of, some things uh, were missed simply because there wasn't a, a definition or an acknowledgement. Um, you know, I was misdiagnosed at 17 because you could only have PTSD if you had a uh, essentially kind of like a quote unquote big T trauma. So you couldn't, you could only have PTSD if something, you know, stereotypically big happened to you, right? Like victim of physical assault, sexual assault, obviously being um, someone in the military being at war. Um, mm -hmm. 
didn't have something like that happen to you, but you had all the other symptoms, then you wouldn't get diagnosed with PTSD. Hmm. So, yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. So how would you personally define trauma? It's a subjective experience. It's anything that makes you feel helpless, hopeless, um, fear, of course, but anything that makes you feel completely isolated and alone can also feel life-threatening. A lot of times we only think of like literal physical life-threatening situations as traumatic, but social and emotional isolation and neglect can do the same thing. Um, whether, whether we like it or not, we are social beings. Um, and so social, emotional um, trauma is, is just as valid. Um, so, so really trauma is so much more subjective and broader than most people think. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I hear you. So we've talked a little bit about PTSD, but I know we wanted to chat a little bit about CPTSD and what that means. Can you share with us what the difference is between the two? For sure. Um, So honestly, most people probably have complex PTSD or CPTSD versus PTSD. Not to minimize PTSD, it's it's a real thing. It's also not fun to have. But um, it's easier to start with PTSD first and then we can go to CPTSD. So PTSD generally is going to be a, like a singular terrible thing happened, right? Traumatic event happened, um, which generally is going to be like one of those, again, stereotypical traumas. Um, so physical assault, sexual assault, um, a terrible car crash, again, being someone who's witnessed and been in war. Um, but CPTSD can be include a bigger trauma, but it can also include what we say in the the EMDR therapy world as a little t. So this is something that happening by itself might not be a big deal, right? Someone, you know, doesn't invite me and isolates me once, you know, okay, that's going to hurt my feelings, but that's not going to follow me decades later. But if I experience a social isolation or emotional abuse or neglect for weeks or months or years, that is going to be traumatic, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so CPTSD involves those little situations. And I don't mean little as in they don't mean as much, um, just that they're generally less noticeable. That's why I like calling them actually the microaggressions of trauma. Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot of little little traumas are harder to identify. Um, uh, not all, but sometimes they can also um, be from a well-intentioned person. Um, and so that's that's why I like calling them that. But yeah, so it's these little things that happen or smaller things that happen on top of usually also bigger things that happen. And the, the other main difference is time. So again, PTSD is going to come from something that was happened in a short span of time, or again, just happened once, whereas CPTSD generally includes something that's been going on for weeks, months, or years with little to no break. Got it. I think that's very helpful. That's a great definition. Uh, So what is EMDR? What do those letters stand for? I know. There's so many letters in my field. (laughs) Uh, It's the story of my life. So... EMDR is a mouthful to say, eye movement desensitization, (laughs) see, I I can't even say it right, 
eye movement desensitization reprocessing. And it came about in 80, 1987. Uh, the only reason why I know that by memory is because that's my birth year <laughs> as well. Ah. <laughs> yeah, right? Hey, it's like fate. Um, so basically, it, eye movement comes from um, bilateral stimulation as in like rapid eye movement, right? So whenever we sleep or dream, um, well, when we're sleeping and we dream, we go into REM sleep. So rapid eye movement. So that's where that rapid eye comes from. Um, and that rapid eye movement is our brain's like natural way of processing through thoughts and feelings. That's why we dream. Um, even if you don't remember your dreams, you, we dream every night. Um, and we use that process, that bilateral process, um, when you're conscious and awake to help what's the word I want to use here, um, kind of rework a traumatic memory, which mm -hmm. is what the desensitization comes from. Um, one thing that a lot of people don't understand about EMDR though, um, is that it's its whole, it's its own therapy. Um, so even though the name is specifically referring to the eye movement piece, um, that's actually only, there's like, there's eight phases of EMDR. Uh, mm -hmm. So that's only one of the eight phases of EMDR, that actual eye movement process. Um, but, you know, I can't speak for Francine Shapiro, who created the name. Um, but it makes sense because that's its most unique property um, of the therapy. Mm -hmm. I feel like nightmares are one of my most significant symptoms. And you mentioned REM sleep as part of this. Do you think there's a connection there? Oh, totally. Um that's what, why I think EMDR works so well. It's like, we're taking what your brain already does to try to process something, but we're helping you kind of tap into whatever power that is, uh, when you're conscious mm -hmm. and awake. Um, unfortunately, obviously, yeah, with, with someone who has CPTSD or PTSD, you have very vivid, essentially kind of re-traumatizing nightmares. Right. Um, but in, in the MDR therapy session, we help create not just a sense of safety, but also part of creating that safe space to actually go through and rework these memories is also providing you a tremendous amount of resources to prepare for that. That and a lot of times when we have these really vivid trauma-fueled nightmares, they're generally done in first person right? You're literally reliving what happened. And when we do reprocessing, uh, generally speaking, we try to avoid you. We don't want you to relive or re-experience what happened. That's not helpful. That's why certain <laughs> other PTSD um, uh, related therapies um, haven't worked or sometimes cause more harm than good, unfortunately, is uh, they don't, is it, they end up having you re-experience almost what happened. Um, that's generally not productive. So not only do we create a safe space and give you resources, but we also uh, try to set up the actual reprocessing phase uh, for you to go through it more like in third person. Or sometimes we'll say, imagine, you know, revisiting this memory um, through a TV screen or through a window. Um, 
you, like a lot of times, most memories, not all, but many memories that we uh, target are going to be from childhood or teenage years. But certainly we can, of course, target something when you're an adult. Um, but to say we're targeting something from childhood. Um, so then you, um, adult Alyssa, would imagine revisiting the memory as adult Alyssa. So you'd be seeing little Alyssa there. Mm-hmm. Um, that's another important feature as well. That also makes it different than that nightmare, right? Um, And there's other ways to also add in support uh, to make it less vivid, to make it less intense. Um, Because that's the other thing that's important is the client is in the driver's seat. We're here as a guide for the process Um, But we're not intentionally going to put you in um, or push you into a direction or into a memory that you're not ready for. Mm -hmm. Um, Say during a reprocessing session, uh, it, you know, leads to a path that's too intense. We don't have to go down that path yet. Um, So that's also the beauty of it. It's very flexible. It's very workable. Um, in so many ways. A lot of people get scared of EMDR therapy because it can be intense. I've had some clients call it like an emotional marathon, Mm -hmm. Um, but we can help build endurance. Um, I'm not going to make you run a marathon (laughs) right then and there. You know, let's just walk down the block. Let's, you know, do a 5k. Let's jog. (laughs) Uh, There'll be plenty of water breaks and, and things like that. Mm, building endurance. I love that. Do you have a favorite coping mechanism, either as a therapist or as a person who receives therapy? Oh, for sure. Um, the main one I use with uh, clients and for myself is a container. Uh, the way I look at it is like, we don't have control over intrusive thoughts and feelings that come up, right? All of us can be guilty of sitting there and being like, oh my God, why did I say that in eighth grade, right? Like (laughs) those things just come out of nowhere. Um, But what we can develop is a skill to manage and how to respond to those intrusive thoughts and feelings that come up, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And essentially because you use your imagination, like the sky's the limit on what this looks like. Right. Um, the most common example would be imagining like a literal, you know, container or box. Right. And so say at the end of a session, you don't want, you have all these residual thoughts and feelings that are sitting with you. You need to go to work. Maybe you just want to have a nice evening. Um, maybe you have a test or something coming up. So you can imagine putting all of those residual thoughts and feelings that you don't want to carry with you into this container. And then imagine locking it up and securing it and setting Mm -hmm. it away. Um, And sometimes you have to reuse it and that's okay. Or reinforce it. I've had some clients where I'm like, put some guard dogs on there, you know, put like an Avenger to prevent it from opening up, whatever, Um, you know, add as many layers to it as you need. That container is always there for you to, to put things in. Um, so that you can carry on. Now, 
some people kind of naturally do this. I've had some people say like, oh yeah, I put all of that stuff into a, you know, a suitcase and threw it into the ocean metaphorically and there it stayed. I'm like, mm, yeah, no, it floated back. It <laughs> you have to come back to it. That's the thing. The container only works. Um, well, it's, it, the container is a short-term skill um, mm -hmm. that only works if you're doing the continual work. Um, same with any coping skill, really coping skills are great, but coping skills don't fix the problem. It just makes it life more manageable while you're working on the problem. Um, you know, uh, I always say like, um, not all, but many coping skills is kind of like taking, um, pain medicine. Like say I got a really bad infection and it's causing pain. So I could take pain meds so that I can move so that I can go to work. I can, you know, be as much of an able-bodied person as possible while I'm managing this infection. But, uh, the actual therapy part, um, and, and healing part is actually healing the source of the infection, making the infection actually go away. Uh, so if you're only taking the pain meds and not actually treating the infection, the infection is just going to get worse and spread. And then the pain meds aren't going to work as well. Um, and so eventually you'll need more pain meds or something like that. Mm -hmm. um, <clears throat> so yeah, a container is wonderful um, and very versatile, um, but will only work if you're actually working on what you're containing. So mm -hmm. um, another way to use the container is like, okay, so I have this stuff locked away. I'm going to open this back up at my next therapy session. I'm going to open this back up tonight when I'm with my wife and I can talk to her about it. Or when I see my friend, um, or I'll, I'm going to contain this until it's Saturday <laughs> and I have an entire day off to sit and manage these feelings. Mm -hmm. So let's say somebody is ready to unpack that suitcase. How do you find a therapist who's the right fit for you? That's a great question because a lot of people don't realize that you, you choose the therapist, right? Now, with that said, I will acknowledge that not everyone has the privilege to be choosy, right? Therapy can be mm -hmm. unfortunately very expensive. Um, and, you know, your selection pool depending on where you live, may not be super great. Um, but for people who are able to be somewhat choosy, or even if it is a therapist that, um, even if you have a limited supply, you can still do your best, ask questions to see if they're a good fit. Or even if they're not the best fit, at least you're now aware of that. You're aware of maybe the limitations of what you can address with this person. Right. Um, so it's helpful to ask questions and actually, um, I can send this to you. I have a awesome resource that I did not make, um, <laughs> that I like to refer to. Um, the person who made this resource is, um, actually, let me just look at it before I miss say their name wrong. <laughs> um, they're a therapist I follow on TikTok. Uh, some big fan. Um, Dr. Raquel Martin is her name. I said her name before pulling up the document, but I'm 99% <laughs> sure that's her name. Yes, Dr. Raquel Martin. Um, big fan of her TikToks. Um, and this is a free resource PDF she created um, for people to use. Um, Sweet. 
Now there's certain questions that are also geared towards like, so I am a multi-ethnic Korean queer person. And so uh, not to say that I should only see therapists who are like multi-ethnic Korean like myself or queer like myself, right? Um, but those identities are really important to me aside from also finding a trauma-informed therapist or in my case also mm -hmm. an ER therapist. Um, but I'm going to ask them, you know, questions like, have you ever worked with someone in my community before? Mm -hmm. You know, how do you work with queer people? What does that look like for you? Right. So there's yeah. a lot of, there's a variety of questions on here. It's multiple pages. So I obviously won't read all of them, but I'll highlight ones that I really think are important. Like for instance, what field of mental health do you specialize in? So since we're talking about EMDR and trauma, um, do you specialize in trauma? Are you comfortable working with trauma? One thing that kills me is I've had so many clients and I, and I know I'll continue throughout probably my whole career hearing this. I've had so many clients tell me, yeah, you know, I just want to make sure that you can handle me. Cause I've had like, they've had therapists literally tell them like, Oh, like you have, you're too much for me. Like, yeah. um, you have too many issues. This is too intense. Like, I just don't understand why any therapist would ever, even if that's true, I think that's one of the worst things you can say to someone, right? Our, our, our job is literally to help people and you're making them feel like they have too many problems. <laughs> yeah. um, so if it's out of your scope, if, if, if it is too intense for you, um, don't tell them that. <laughs> just be like, oh, you know what? this isn't the right fit. I don't specialize in this. Like, I don't know, but anyway, that's for therapists yeah. to hear. Um, <laughs> but if you're a person who's ever been told that by a therapist, I'm sorry, that's, that's, a, that's a them problem, not a you problem. Um, and no, uh, I don't know, no shade to, to uh, therapists that are uncomfortable working with trauma. I just don't understand that mentality though. Like, um, <laughs> Maybe I, I maybe that's my own bias because obviously I've grown. I've been I've had trauma symptoms since I was at least ten years old, so mm -hmm. um, well more than half of my life. Um, so I'm very comfortable with trauma, but it's just it just I guess confuses me and baffles me um, for someone to to want to become a therapist and not be comfortable to some degree working with trauma because it's so prevalent. Um, you know, but anyway, <laughs> that's yeah. a different direction. And that um, language of too much, I feel like so many of us have heard that in other aspects of our lives from other people exactly. already. So to hear it from someone that you're trusting so much with your story, yeah. I can't imagine how painful that must be. Exactly. Right. It's like, this is literally your job. It's like, you know, someone whose job is to listen to people's problems is then telling you like you're, you have the most problems. Like that's, even if that is true, do not let them know that. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah, anyway, <laughs> um, another really great question actually relates to what you had asked me, which is like, what does a safe space mean to you? Right. Mm -hmm. Cause what's safe to you might be very different than what's safe to them or how do they create those safe spaces? That's another big problem. Um, in the EMDR world is some people get quote unquote trained in EMDR, but where they got the training is actually not a certified <laughs> training. And so they get so focused that this is the problem of EMDR only being known as that reprocessing phase, the, the rapid eye movement phase is again, there are three phases before that phase. 
And uh, those three phases are meant to prepare that person for the reprocessing phase. And so if you haven't created that safety and given you those tools and resources, of course it's going to suck. Of course it's going to seem too hard and too intense, right? Um, So that's a great question. Um, And then let's see. Another one I really love. Oh, one is a whole section. This isn't a question, but she has a whole section on like, it's literally called vibe check. (laughs) <laughs> so, you know, you know, did the therapist seem funny, idealistic, observant, inflexible, focused, perceptive, impatient, right? So it gives you all these like great check boxes. Um, and then after meeting the therapist, I felt and it gives you a bunch of check boxes. So that's really great too. Like, how did it just feel? What was your experience being in the room with this person or being on Zoom with this person, right? Mm-hmm. Um, some more specific questions about like cultural pieces is things like, you know, views between racism and mental health, um, social justice, again, experience working with the queer community. Um, But then you can also ask questions of like, how do you define trauma? Right? Mm. Um, If they say they're an EMDR therapist, have them explain what EMDR therapy looks like for them, what the process Mm. looks like for them. Um, do they have um, multiple modalities or not, right? Um, how do they adjust or respond to someone who's scared to do EMDR, who's um, scared to that it's going to be too intense, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, asking them questions like that. Also, where did they get their training? <laughs> and look up where they got their training. Uh, I can't emphasize that one, that one enough, unfortunately. Um, yeah. So there's a lot of different questions. Like you're interviewing them. They're of course also interviewing you. Um, right. But even if they say that they want to work with you, you are not obligated to say yes. Mm-hmm. I've definitely been that person who felt nervous to start EMDR. So that's very reassuring to hear about the different phases and how they're supposed to be able to be supportive of you throughout that entire journey not just dropping you in and saying, okay, have fun reprocessing that. Exactly. Yeah. Um, the only times when I've been able to start reprocessing very, very quickly is, well, I can't say only, but generally that's going to be someone who's done a lot of therapy before and who already has a lot of resources. Mm-hmm. Um, but we have to make sure it's, it's a delicate dance really, because obviously you don't want to just like be stuck in just resource building. <laughs> Um, there's a line there of like, okay, this person's actively being triggered, is actively living with really heavy symptoms. So we want to get to that reprocessing phase. Um, but again, we also want to make sure that, uh, we don't jump into that reprocessing phase too quickly. Um, What advice would you give somebody who's thinking about starting therapy? Um, aside from interviewing them, like we talked about, um, that's a good question. Ideally, like if you have an idea of what you're even looking for, right? Not everyone has to go to therapy for trauma. Um, it's, it's a personal growth journey. Uh, so, you know, even though the, it, the therapist is also meant to guide you, uh, do you have an idea on where you want to be guided? Mm-hmm. Um, the other thing that's really important to be prepared for that not all therapists, I think, tell people is 
think about the people that are close to you that you love and you want to stay close with because if you don't take them with you on this journey and they're not willing to go with you on this journey you can very likely leave them behind and outgrow them mm. that's one of the maybe bittersweet parts of therapy um that can be true for more so for some than others um but i absolutely experienced that you know i'm not the same person i was when i started therapy and I wasn't fully prepared for how that would change my relationships. Now, of course, it changed them for the better because I developed better boundaries, developed better self-esteem. Um, I started to value myself more. But if I was around people and or family who didn't value me that way and didn't want to value me that way, wanted me to stay in my role that I outgrew, then that relationship's not going to work anymore or that relationship's going to change. Um, so that's another thing that's really important. It's not to say that like you're responsible for making them grow. Right. Um, but you know, that's why for me, all of my closest friends and family and my wife are all people who value personal growth because growth and my journey with therapy is going to be lifelong as not to say that I'll, I'll be seeing the same therapist, you know, the rest of my life per se, and not necessarily that I'll be in therapy once a week for the rest of my life, but I'm committed to, and likely will be in therapy on and off for the rest of my life. Mm -hmm. And if I'm not with someone who's, uh, committed to that kind of growth, uh, again, I can outgrow them. And I definitely don't want to do that with, especially like, you know, with my wife, that's kind of important. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, and that also doesn't mean they have to be in therapy. Um, there's a lot of different ways to have personal growth, to develop insight and self-awareness. Um, but uh, yeah, again, they have to be committed to some sort of growth journey with you. Mm -hmm. Do you feel comfortable you feel talking more about your own journey? Oh, like absolutely. how long have you been in therapy? Um, I mean, I've been in and out of therapy since I was about... 10 or so. Um, my more recent years of therapy is, is, is interesting. Um, so I still did a little bit of therapy in my early 20s, but then uh, I stopped. I think I just wasn't ready for it anymore. Um, that and the therapist I was with, again, weren't as trauma-informed. Um, mm -hmm. So I started going to grad school in 2012. Oh my God, that was over 10 years ago. <laughs> um, so fall 2012, I started my grad program to become a therapist and I wasn't in therapy and I hadn't been in therapy for probably at least a few years. And I remember sitting in class one day talking about something from my past and because it was related to the material. And I said like, Oh, you know, that was a long time ago. It's not like it, that affects me anymore. And I remember, uh, my, one of my professors who's still a mentor and friend to me to this day, uh, literally went oh, bullshit. And I was like, Oh, what do you mean? Um, and what's interesting about that is, uh, the first semester of grad school, we all pretend to be not pretend we kind of pretend slash practice being each other's therapists. And so that's when I was like, Oh, okay. There's a lot of unresolved things coming up. Um, so I went back, um, and, uh, actually I started EMDR therapy, um, 
that next semester. So I, so I first became a client of EMDR therapy before becoming a therapist. Um, and that helped tremendously. Um, not even just um, the reprocessing part. Again, EMDR is a whole therapy on its own. I mean, finally having resources to be less reactive. Um, you know, um, I don't have a lot of nightmares, but uh, my, my PTSD uh, episodes are very uh, overwhelming. Um, mine are generally very fear-based. Um, you know, when they're at their when they're at their worst. I, I can like go into like basically like a fetal position and it's just uncontrollable crying. Um, and when I would get to those kind of experiences, it would take hours to come out of it. Mm -hmm. Um, and so obviously that's not very fun to experience and very draining. Um, but even without those really big episodes, just the general struggle of managing my emotions, right? Becoming so quick to be to feel so scared or feel so angry or feel so sad and debilitating. We're, I mean, we're so debilitating. Mm-hmm. Um, not to mention the insecurities and the negative messages about myself um, that had developed um, from the trauma I grew up in. So... Uh, starting that EMDR journey nine years ago, almost 10 years ago though, um, has, has significantly decreased the frequency and intensity that I experience any of those symptoms. Um, that and what's, what's helped me and generally I think what helps most people as well with therapy is just that self-awareness. So even if I, I still might have an episode every now and again, they generally only last um, minutes to maybe an hour. Uh, you know, it's to the point where I can tell myself, like I've had, last time I had, one time I had a, an episode and I could literally say like, I know this is not the same. Like logically, I know this is not the same. I know exactly where this is coming from. The, the feelings, you know, um, and emotions are still coming up, but I know this isn't the same. Um, mm-hmm. And that, that, of course, thankfully helped me come out of it sooner. Uh, that, that's, I think when it comes to a lot of trauma, especially CPTSD, um, the main goal is decreasing the frequency and intensity of the symptoms. Mm-hmm. Um and aside from reprocessing, yeah, just that increased self-awareness of like, oh, yep, that's that's a trigger. <laughs> um, that's something I'm sensitive to. Um, or also just like, oh, it's not just this like person. It's not just this event. You know, there's something else I hadn't even thought of before or wasn't ready to think about. Mm-hmm. Um and then, so that's been a huge, um, help for me. Um, I've switched therapists a couple of times actually since then I had a ther- that therapist for, uh, I think six years or something. So a long time. Um, but I kind of outgrew them, um, which is interesting to say about outgrowing an EMDR therapist, but I didn't outgrow the EMDR. I'm actually back in EMDR therapy. I outgrew some other cultural pieces, um, at play there. Um, 
so I've also had to go and deal with asking tough questions um, about what it's like for someone to work in, in certain communities that are important to me. Do you believe it's possible to ever fully heal from your trauma? Like it's gone, like it never happened? Um, I think it depends on what fully healing looks like. And maybe that's actually another important thing for someone to maybe figure out. Hmm. Um, you know, and, and so I'd say like, I think that fully healing for me isn't that it never happened. It's that I no longer take responsive, I don't say responsibility, but like, um, it doesn't have the power that it did. Right. I can still reflect on something and it'll make me sad, but sadness is understandable. Mm-hmm. It's the overwhelming sadness. It's the reliving it, right? Feeling, feeling it like it just happened, like it's happening now, even if it happened 10, 20 years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and, and I, I, it's funny. I, I've had I've had this conversation with clients before, and I feel like I should really actually like research this part. Um, but I don't want to. This might not be like what people want to hear, but unfortunately, like especially chronic trauma, long term trauma, and CPTSD, um, and PTSD, it can change the way your brain works, change your brain activity, change. Um, sizing of certain parts of your brain. Uh, and I don't know if all of that's reversible. Mm-hmm. I, I do I do think that some of it is. Um, again, my brain's not nearly as hyperactive and hypervigilant um, like it used to be, thankfully. Um, but I don't know if uh, fully healing means that the brain works exactly like it did before trauma. Mm-hmm. Um, but I do think that the brain is very adaptive. And um, even if there are maybe permanent changes, it doesn't mean that all the changes are for um, like all bad, I guess you could say. It might be kind of yeah. weird to think about, but like for instance, that's where I, where I really appreciate like the neurodivergent community. Um, and even just the, the term neurodivergence, um, because, uh, certain neurodivergent diagnoses are very stigmatizing, um, or, or have a lot of stigmatization attached to their names. And I think that neurodivergence is a great way to reframe that. Uh, cause I think a lot of neurodivergence is like a superpower for a lot of people, even if there's some skills that need to be or could be built to make life a little easier or better. Um, And uh, some people include PTSD and complex PTSD and trauma into the neurodivergence umbrella. So it's something that might sound odd, but it's something that can be embraced to some degree. Uh, My trauma is something that I think helps me be a better therapist. Um, not to say that I can never fully heal my trauma to be a good therapist, um, but uh, you know my my trauma has, is a part of who I am. Um, but I but it also doesn't have to have the same kind of negative power like it like it has had. Um, mm-hmm. If that makes sense. 
Yeah, that totally makes sense. So, okay, pretend I'm a client for a second, and I'm going to ask you this question. When can I expect to see progress in therapy? (laughs) That's such a common question. Uh, But but it's also a good one, though, uh, because a lot of people get nervous about asking that. Um, Actually, before I answer that, I feel like there's one more thing I should say. I feel like I I can hear my, like, EMDR mentors screaming at me. Um, (laughs) Um, with the fully healed question, um, I will say that with EMDR therapy, the goal is to make the traumatic events um, completely neutral to you. Um, mm. Like we ask you on a scale of zero to 10, generally, zero being neutral, not at all, no feeling, 10 being the most distressing you can ever feel. And say, you know, traumatic memory is a 10, we would want to work on that memory until it's a zero, until you can look back on it. And, you know, again, maybe understandably feel some sadness. Um, or like, you know, because I've had some clients that are like, that's always going to be disturbing. It's like, okay, but, but does it feel disturbing? Does it feel like, you know, does, yeah, like there's a difference between acknowledging that something is sad and disturbing and actually feeling it intensely. Right. Mm-hmm. So the goal is for it to be a zero, for it to not feel disturbing or distressing. Mm-hmm. Um, to significantly yeah, reduce the power of that memory. Um, so when I talk about those other things of like, um, uh, you know, changes in the brain, maybe not being ever fully reversible, doesn't mean that the, um, I do think that the goal though of, of targeting a memory of EMDR though is uh, so that these specific uh, events and traumas don't have power anymore. Um, but that some other things like um, very easily startled and many, not all, but many people with trauma are very easily startled. Um, that still might be something I deal with. Like that's just a physiological response um, that just may always be there. Um, that's that's when I that's why I kind of turn into like the neurodivergence piece. Um, there are certain um, symptoms that fall under that neurodivergence umbrella that might always be there, even if um, you've worked through all the traumas. Um, but they're generally not as intense as they were. Um, so yeah, I feel like that's a better way of. Yeah, I was just like, oh god, I can just hear <laughs> like Ginger. Why didn't you say this? But anyway. <laughs> yeah, um, I appreciate it. But uh, okay, when do you expect to see results? So a very popular therapist response would be, it depends. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But um, many times, again, it also depends on like what results mean, but many times, even within the first, like one, just having resourcing, um, having a space to just start talking things through can already start to help, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and then when we talk about actually like reprocessing traumatic memory, uh, many times you can start noticing results after that first session. Um, not everyone notices it as much because sometimes it can, um, alleviate things in ways you weren't expecting. Mm-hmm. Um, but I've had many clients where, uh, cause even, even though it's a reprocessing session, it's happening during that therapy session, right? Um, the work and we contain it, uh, the work still keeps going, right? We've, we've started, we started turning the wheels, 
Um, you're starting to make more connections. You're increasing that self-awareness. Um, you're seeing the things that trigger you more often. Um, that once that it's not it's not something that I mean I guess like some people who are very good at numbing and like compartmentalizing things um, who really seem to like turn off their brains I guess in that in that case um, maybe they won't do as much work in between sessions but generally speaking once we've once we've started it just keeps going mm-hmm. yeah um, but when it comes to like uh, being able to finish working through a traumatic memory, um, getting to that zero that we talked about, um, that also just really depends. Um, depends on the person. It depends on the depth of the trauma. It depends um, on so many things. And so, uh, again, sometimes uh, depending on the memory, um, an event, you can actually work through that whole event and get to a zero within that one session. Um, but those are a little less common. Um, and on the other spectrum of that, um, in a very complex situation, um, you know, I know, I know someone who worked on an EMDR target for nine months. So mm-hmm. it just really depends, but it doesn't mean that they didn't experience allevi- like alleviating symptoms and benefit, um, until those nine months, right. They experienced it during that time. Mm-hmm. Uh, it doesn't usually go from 10 to a zero you know, right away. Um, so you are still experiencing um, reduced symptomology and intensity. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. Mm-hmm. I know you mentioned how important it is to have your family and friends along with you on this journey, or at least in the loop of what's going on. Uh, so when family or friends ask how they can help with my recovery, what should I suggest? It's uh, a great question. Um, honestly, patience and understanding right um sometimes we say things because we think it's helpful and it's really not um a a video i love that i think does a great job um illustrating that's from brene brown um the difference between empathy and sympathy um you know sometimes even though it doesn't feel necessarily as productive the best thing we need is someone to just sit with us sit and feel with us. Um, a lot of times people immediately go to that, like cheering up thing. Right. Um, it's okay to ask, you know, do you need distraction? Do you need, you know, cheering up or do you need me to be with you? Mm -hmm. Um, in whatever you're feeling. Uh, sometimes when I'm working on a really difficult, uh, trauma, I will give a couple people a heads up of, hey, I might be a little more sensitive to um, like yelling, or I might be a little more sensitive uh, like if you say this word, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, that can be helpful because then they can just be mind extra mindful of that. Um, on EMDR therapy days, um, you could always also have like a plan with a couple people of like, all right, this is going to be a, you know, movie and cuddles night (laughs) or, um, you know, something like that. Uh, but again, the, the really, it just depends on the person on what they need. Um, maybe like on a day where you're having a hard time, you know, they're okay with just giving you space. Right. 
Um, but I, I think the main things is showing you support in ways that are supportive to you um, and to avoid, which most, so many people with PTSD deal with is, um, you know, like, just get over it. <laughs> it happened so long ago. Why are you letting it get to you? Like, those are the worst things um, for people to say. Um, or, you know, I've, I've had people be like, oh, you're still in therapy? Like, isn't it better? <laughs> <laughs> Do you think I want to keep paying for this? Like, <laughs> um, yeah. So some, so some, some do's and don'ts there. Mm-hmm. I hear you. I know you mentioned reactivity earlier. Is that something you can share more about? Like, what does that look like for somebody with yeah, trauma? Totally. Um, so that's where like generally that the, 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 some of the changes in the brain, that's where those uh, not so fun changes in the brain. Um, so generally speaking, if someone has trauma and, and CPTSD, um, you have a harder time um, regulating your emotions. Um, you're, you more easily go into fight, flight, freeze, or fawn mode. Um, we generally mostly think of only fight or flight and sometimes freeze, but fawn, not as much. Um, but, uh, yeah, you're more likely to go into emergency crisis mode. Um, and even if again, intellectually, you don't think there's something wrong, um, that increased reactivity can also just be, you know, a spike in heart rate, your blood pressure, your body tensing up, um, maybe struggling to breathe, uh, or very intense emotionality of, uh, I laugh because I'm a big crier. It's just in general. Um, but, uh, you know, watching some, like this happened to me once where I was watching, uh, I think it was a Nicholas Sparks movie of all things. Like this is supposed to be a romantic movie. Um, but there's like a domestic violence storyline in it. Oh boy. <laughs> and like, she has a flashback and I'm like, Oh, this is nope. Uh, so, uh, you know, generally it probably would have made me cry anyway. Again, I'm a crier, but like the level of crying was not matching what was happening. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, actually, that's a great way of looking at it. Um, so say that the level of distress of watching a scene like that, uh, let's go back to that zero to 10 scale. Say like that level of distress would probably be like a two or a three. Oh, that's a really sad thing to watch. How terrible, you know, and they acted that scene so well. Um, but my response was like a nine. <laughs> There's a huge discrepancy there. That's that's a perfect example of reactivity. Um, or say, you know, um, my my wife uh, tries to set a boundary with me, and I find that irritating. So, like logically, it could be like, okay, that's also like a two or a three, or maybe a four. Um, maybe she does it a lot, so it's annoying. So let's make it a four. But my response. It, whether that's anger or sadness, um, is also, again, an eight, nine, or 10. That's reactivity. Mm-hmm. And generally speaking, especially in a trauma mindset, it means that there's something else also going on. There's something else fueling your emotional response, which is why your emotional response is not matching up to the situation. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. And so generally that means that, like, for instance, me watching that movie scene, um, I'm not just watching that movie scene anymore. That movie scene's reminding me of something from my childhood. 
Um, I'm, I'm remembering what that was like. Um, so it's not just about the movie. Um, it's, it's reminding me of something extremely unpleasant. And again, maybe even, um, bringing back, uh, those memories, bringing back those feelings, bringing back those thoughts. Maybe I'm feeling like a kid again. Um, so that's what that reactivity can look like. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, I want to say thank you again so much for your time today. I know I felt really seen and I'm sure a lot of other people will as well, but I do have one more final question, yeah. which is what's something small you've done in the past week that made you feel like a badass? <laughs> oh, I love that question. That's great. Oh man. Um, <laughs> uh, I mean, there's two things that come to mind. One is, um, I got back into, to, uh, weightlifting, uh, and so I always feel like a badass at the end of, at the end of uh, body movement like that. Um, but the other one um, is uh, I bake sourdough bread and just lifting up the lid and seeing your oven spring and just like the beauty of your bread. I'm like, oh, yes, I made this. <laughs> oh my gosh. Um, I, yeah, so I feel like a, a bread making badass in that way. <laughs> I love that. It's alliterative. Beautiful. Yes. <laughs> yes. I, 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 I move my body so that I can enjoy, enjoy my, my breads. <laughs> mm, yes. We love carbs in this household. <laughs> yeah. And where can people connect with you? So, um, really my website's the best one. So it's actually just my name, which is gingerclee.com. Uh, as much as I'd love to be a big social media presence like Dr. Raquel Martin, I just do not have the spoons or energy for that. Um, maybe one day, (laughs) uh, like I admire what you do and all your posts and they, they help me so much. Um, uh, so I thank you for your social media posts. Um, but yeah, my website, I have some resources on there. Um, I actually have a, a blog post I wrote a long time ago, kind of talking about the difference between big traumas and little traumas or big T's, little T's. Um, mm-hmm. and, and honestly, people are more than welcome to reach out to me. Um, I can't um, be a therapist for anyone that's not in the state of California. Um, but I'm more than happy to help give my time um, to like, you know, maybe help people point people in the right direction to find a therapist. There's so many, that's actually uh, another great thing about the document I'll share with you from Dr. Martin. She lists a bunch of different websites of how to find therapists, depending on like the community you belong to. Um, I don't mind answering questions um, and to help at least help point people in the right direction when I can. Hmm. That's very generous. I'm sure people will really appreciate that. Yeah. You know, I mean, it it can be overwhelming to know where to start and, you know, having bad therapy can be so discouraging Um, Mm -hmm. and also just additionally traumatizing. So um, if I can help in any way I can, I do my best for sure. And I will link all of this stuff down in the show notes below. Awesome. Yay. Okay. I'm 